Welcome to Moonshot. I'm Christopher Lawson. We've talked many times on this show about the future of food. And in that examine the companies out there trying to recreate meat using plant-based ingredients. Our most recent episode back in May gave you an update on what was happening with Giants Beyond Meat and also Impossible Foods. And in this episode, we're diving much deeper with Nick Haller, SVP of International at Impossible Foods. I had the chance to speak with Nick at RISE Conference in Hong Kong in early July, and he shared with me the company's strategy on going global. So I grew up on a small family dairy farm in a state called Minnesota in the Midwest of the U.S. And for that is like our job as farmers was to produce good food affordably while maintaining our land for future generations. And that last part, I guess there's one other, which is making money, which is also very hard to do as a small farmer. And so if you look at maintaining our land for future generations, as the global population has grown, it's just gotten harder and harder to do that when all the pressures are to produce more, produce more, produce more. And so we have to change that dynamic. And so my background on the farm actually played a lot into Impossible because I understood how the system worked. And so as we think about how we're going to scale Impossible to have the the most positive impact on the world, I can take that background and apply it here. So I'm Nick Halla. I'm the SVP of International and Retail at Impossible Foods. I joined the company when we started eight years ago as the first employee to be our our founder's uh, business partner. So my background has always been agriculture and dairy farming, worked at General Mills as an engineer designing new products and manufacturing systems. And I was transitioning out of that when I went to grad school to work on renewable energy and sustainable technologies, because that's where I saw the idea of science and technology of having a big global environmental impact. And so when I went to graduate school, I kind of wrote that off. And as I was finishing up, I met a professor in the medical school, a guy named Dr. Patrick Brown. And in 2009, he took a sabbatical looking at, as a biochemist, how he could have the biggest impact on the world with the rest of his career. And when he started looking at the numbers, he realized one of the biggest challenges we have is how do we feed the growing population? And the biggest threat that we have is our, uh, our reliance on animals for a food production technology. Animals are great at producing products that people love, but they're extremely inefficient. And so you look at a cow in the U.S., which is probably the most efficient since it's the most concentrated. Um, It's a 3% efficient technology of taking plant-based nutrients and proteins and converting them into the meat that we eat today. And so that's a huge opportunity. So if we look at global impact, we can have a much, much bigger global impact. We have to have a bigger global impact in food than any of biofuels or solar or batteries and things like that that I had been working on. And that inspired me because it brought my past life together too and looked at it and say, what is the future of agriculture? What is the future of human consumption of food? And how can we make that a better experience while making it better for the world? As we've discussed on the show before, Impossible Foods is trying to look at the fundamental structure of meat and then take that structure and recreate it using plants. And Impossible now have more than 100 scientists looking at this very problem. So we try to take plant-based ingredients, formulate them into something that tastes better than what you get from a cow. It's not going to get us there and you're going to end up with a veggie burger. So what we said is like, we need to approach meat just like you approach like cancer research. Break it down into all the fundamental 
chemistry that's happening as meat is formed, as meat cooks, all the aromas and flavors, what is driving those? And so we learn things like, so it's like when you like taste and smell beef as you're cooking it, you don't smell beef, you smell hundreds and hundreds of different compounds that are all created as you cook. And so if we wanted to try to replicate that, it'd be very complex, costly, and definitely not scalable. But as a team dug deeper, we learned that there's one protein in meat, a protein called heme that drives all the flavor chemistry as you cook. So now we have a really simple way to create that diverseness, that richness, that craveability. And so the first two years were all doing fundamental learnings like that to break down the meat-based system and find plant-based solutions of how to replicate that. And once we had enough tools, then we started applying it to creating products. Impossible first focused on ground meat, because it's the base ingredient used in many types of cooking around the world. One of the products that can be created with ground meat is of course the burger, but Impossible's products can be used in all kinds of dishes by the chefs who use it. It's also a much easier product to create, compared to say, a steak. Yeah, you can say the realm is like a hot dog which is probably not that hard to do. It's essentially emulsified. You can put a lot of things into that. Um, or to a steak or like, you know, tuna, something like that. And so we kind of picked in somewhere in between. You know, for burgers, it still is a product and like ground meat that is typically the lead product on the plate. So you're not hiding it in sauces and most stuff. It is like the main experience that you're getting. And it has to be used in hundreds and hundreds of different types of dishes. We weren't going to create a burger. We are creating ground meat that can be used in anything. So it still is a very big technical challenge for us to prove the platform and what we can do. So it's like, yeah, it's not the steak, which we all get to. We definitely will get to, but it's not the easiest thing. But the market and the consumer trend and the iconic nature of ground meat in pretty much every culture was very important for us to start this consumer movement. That movement was initially focused on the US market and the company gained a lot of traction. So they started expanding internationally. And now Impossible Foods is also in Hong Kong and this year launched in Singapore. And Nick says there's a number of key reasons why they chose to move into Asia rather than going for other Western countries. There are a lot of factors that go into it. Number one starts with it is a meat heavy market. So we have to address our product is made for the hardest core meat lovers of the world. That's a consumer that we have to convert over to a plant-based ecosystem. You know, the vegetarians and vegans, they'll find us. We don't have to worry about that. But this product, many of them honestly don't like Impossible because it's too meaty. So our core market is the meat eater. So we start there. Then we look at what are the cities, where are the consumers that drive culinary trends in different regions globally? So when we came to Asia, we started here in our global mission outside of the U.S. because 44% of the world's meat is consumed in Asia. It's growing very fast. Food safety and food security are huge challenges. And Hong Kong is one of the heaviest meat-eating cities in the world. And so it's a very good starting place for us to take our product, combine you know, the Western side that we knew out of the U.S., and we're learning, I'd say, but knew more on, and Eastern cuisine, pulling those together. Then you look at the city and you have chefs like Uwe Opachinski, Mei Chao, who are the regionally culinary influencers that now are going to tell all their friends everywhere else about what we're doing. And then it comes down to the consumers that really drive the movement. And so we're looking for the influential cities. We're looking for the meat-heavy cities. We're looking for places that can we can set up and establish operations. Like Hong Kong and Singapore, it's easier to launch in than if we're going into you know, a developing nation or even China, which is obviously a very big, important market for us. We can get our foothold here first, but then we start working on those markets. And we'll be back with more of our interview with Nick Carla right after this break.
Welcome back to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson. And before the break, Nick Harla from Impossible Foods was sharing the reasons why the company expanded into Asia. And it got me wondering, are there actually any fundamental differences in the way that chefs use their products around the world? Uh, very much so. Uh, from day one when we launched over here, the US, the, like the average burger eater, the average person in the US eats almost three burgers a week. It's crazy. And so for us, burgers are so important to that culinary experience of what we need to hit. In Asia, you know, mostly, most modern cities now, burgers are definitely, you know, one of the staple foods. But then you have dumplings, you have all kinds of different cuisines that uh, you need to use ground meat for. So what we saw as soon as we came to Hong Kong, it wasn't just burgers, it was being used in everything. Gordon Ramsay at Bread Street Kitchen serves at Impossible Wellington. Uh, you'll see it served in meatballs and it works really in anything you use ground meat for. And so in Asia, we just see chefs being so much more creative, which is why I, one reason why I love coming here all the time. I can have a wide variety of foods and try different things all the time, even dishes that I probably haven't had before and try with Impossible for the first time. What's the kind of most interesting use case that you've seen and that you've been able to try? Well, I will say the Impossible Wellington was definitely up there. Like, I, I had heard of it before, but I had never had a beef Wellington. And it's so iconic to Gordon Ramsay and, and that. So I think that is up there. You know, you'll see several places doing tartare. You'll, I guess, you know, one of the really cool ones, we have a chef in the Bay Area and he made a donor kebab. So he puts it on the full spigot, slices it off as he cooks it. And it's, it's, it's amazing. At the start of 2019, Impossible introduced their version 2.0 product, which is meant to be even more like meat than the original. And you may be wondering, given that there are chefs out there making kebabs with Impossible's ground beef product, how does it actually cook? Is it similar to meat? Very, very similar. So you look at the macro content of it, it's mostly water and then it's uh, protein and fat, just like ground meat. And so the, the way it handles and the way we had to make this work is we want to give it to chefs and now to home cooks very soon as we're getting ready to launch into grocers and so that they can, it's not a big learning experience. They can handle it really the same way they handle meat. And so there's some benefits as we lose about 10% of the weight as you cook instead of about 30% of beef. So it makes less of, a, as a, less of a mess and you get more product out of what you buy. But it really in the cooking properties and how you use it, it is very, very similar. Very little has to change from what uh, consumers do today. Obviously, your, your target was to go after, you know, meat consumers. Um, so when you're looking at the at the data of who's actually trying the impossible burgers and you know impossible products is that following the trend of the market that you you're after are meat eaters actually trying this product yeah this is extremely important to our mission uh we have to get the meat eater to convert like if you look at it from a sustainability side, vegetarian diets are already more sustainable because they use less nutrients going into them just because animals are so inefficient. No matter what essentially you eat as a vegetarian is more, oh, maybe not everything, but if not everything, very, very close is much more sustainable than something like beef. So we have to hit the meat eater like head on. And so when we do our tracking, the way we do our launches, the way we do our messages is always targeted to reach that meat eater. And well over 90% well 90 of our consumers are meat eaters. And so it is our market. It is who we're hitting. And it's, it's important because the product also appeals. We also hear from vegetarians many times, like, you know, I haven't had meat in 20 years. I tried your product. It's like, I, I can't do it. It's too meaty. And I was like, oh, that's a great compliment. For longtime listeners of the show, 
You'll remember that when we first covered the future of meat, my co-host Andrew Moon went out and picked up an impossible burger to try. At the time, he thought it looked very much like meat and had a similar texture, but it was missing the same beefy flavour profile. And Nick says the company is constantly working on this very problem, going back and revising the product over and over and making it taste more and more like the real thing. Every day in research, we are making new prototypes to make it more meaty. Now, when you do our consumer studies now, so it's always head on head, you know, consumer tries beef, a consumer tries impossible, assuming both come from a cow, because uh, you want to break that and say, here's two burgers, which one do you prefer? Now with meat, eater, meat eaters in the U.S., almost half of them prefer impossible. And so we've essentially caught up to the cow. Now, we don't want to make it exactly like a cow because we want to be much better. And we're just getting started. So we're not stopping at the properties and the sensory the sensory like characteristics consumers love from a cow. We are getting better and better as we learn what you like, what your neighbor likes, which is also typically quite different. Since you've started this mission, uh, there's been a number of other companies entering the space and not just trying, not just in the meat space, but looking at sort of, you know, taking the same approach to creating dairy-based products and, and you know, other, other forms of egg products and things like that. Do you see Impossible staying just within the meat category or do you guys plan to expand elsewhere into these other other categories like dairy? Yeah, so the platform we developed for the first two years, it was completely product agnostic. It was looking at all meat, fish, dairy foods and finding out what are the key drivers of the properties of what consumers like so that we could go in the plant-based world and build new tools for how to do that. Now we decided that ground meat would be the first target for a lot of the reasons that we talked about. Uh, but our research platform and our team have made prototypes of Lot, a lot of different types of meat, dairy foods, cheese, eggs, fish, all kinds of things. And now that we've learned how to do this, it's getting every time we say, it's like, okay, let's work to commercialize this, it moves faster and faster. So we just launched an impossible sausage a couple months ago, and that went extremely fast. It went from concept, it's like, okay, we want to have a sausage, you know, developed more of the pork um, experience, things like that. And within weeks, we had a product. And we'll be back with Nick Hala right after a word from our sponsors. Impossible Foods have raised 687 million US dollars in their quest to change the global meat industry. And while they are making good progress, and they have around 10,000 locations serving their product, the truth is getting people to change their habits is a really hard job. The company is now moving into supermarkets having just gotten approval from the US FDA. And Nick says one of the biggest challenges to getting mass market adoption is actually getting people to try the products and put that impossible beef product into their mouth. So most people have had a veggie burger or a mock meat here in Asia that you hear about a lot. Uh, and so you assume that is a sensory profile and the experience that you're going to get when you hear about Impossible. And for the vast majority of meat eaters, that's not what they're looking for. And so the biggest challenge we have is helping educate consumers that this is meat made from plants, meat made a better way. Go try it and you're going to like it as much and many like it much more than they get from a meat from a cow. But people don't believe it until you try it. And so for us, it's telling that story and why we work with chefs like Uwe here in Hong Kong when we launched Mei Chow. And we, work, we start with the culinary leaders because they can help us start telling that message and reaching their consumer base. But still, that's a starting point. Now we have to reach the broader consumer base too over time. And so I think our biggest challenge is really getting impossible into the mouths of all our consumers. And that changes the perception completely of how they think about our products. 
you mentioned in your talks that you're now kind of like figuring out the production process for making sure that you can hit the scale in terms of like retail locations. Um, What's kind of like the timeline on being in retail locations and, you know, being able to walk into a supermarket and buy an Impossible Foods product? So we are launching retail this year. So it's an exciting point. We've, we've really helped build the awareness of Impossible and start proving that, you know, this is delicious, amazing food through the restaurants. And by far the biggest question we get from consumers is, when can I take it in my home? I want to go down the street, buy it at my supermarket, take it in our home. So it's a very key initiative for us as a company as we launch 2.0, which is so much more versatile. Uh, nutritionals are better for retail and better, better for a consumer package. Um, we're scaling, it's much more scalable. And so now that that's all coming together, we are launching retail later this year. Can you talk a little bit about the um, like the sustainability elements? Because that is a big part of your, your messaging and you are producing like a, a very sort of like processed product in a way. Um, but, you know, the more processes that you add to a product that can sort of like build on sustainability in terms of energy, et cetera, required um, to actually create the products and things like that um so how does your how how does your product compare to regular meat in terms of sustainability yeah i can answer your your process question too because a big part of the platform and why we developed it this way and really the deep fundamental scientific understanding is now to create really simple solutions in the end so you don't have this like crazy process that you have to use to you know create impossible at the end of the day there's only a handful of main ingredients by learning all the fundamental drivers of the sensory that consumers want we could create a really simple process and there's a lot of i mean um, all food is processed to a certain extent and the question is can you build a process that's really good for consumers there's a lot of very good processed food but there's also a lot of really bad processed food and so for us we're going to be really transparent in everything that we do and that's important for our consumers is important for our mission to help our consumers walk with us and come with us on that journey then it all comes back down to sustainability. And so you look at animal agriculture, it can be used to feed millions of people, maybe a billion, but feeding 7 billion, going on 10 billion, as more and more people want meat, it just doesn't work. 45% of the world's arable land surface is used for animal agriculture. Almost 30% of all the fresh water each year is used for that. More greenhouse gases than all transportation combined. And the United Nations projects that meat consumption will increase 70% by 2050. It just doesn't work. And so for us, that is our core mission, what we're focusing on. And the Impossible Burger, Impossible Ground Meat that we have, it uses 96% less land, 89% less greenhouse gas emissions, and 87% less water than meat from a cow. And every serving you have of Impossible has a real difference in that system. The other issue which comes up when talking about these fake meat products is what will happen to the existing meat industry and all the producers who are out there building their livelihood on meat. Yeah, I think for industry, I think there's a couple things. And they say for farmers, so I came from a dairy farm. My first call that I had when I talked to Dr. Brown, or they called my brother. Like, that's all he wants to do is raise animals. He loves it. It's his passion. Now, there's less and less of people like my brother in the world right now uh, for, you know, many, many reasons. It's a really hard way to make a living, uh, for one. But he's like, he's like, I think this is great. Like, our job as farmers is to produce good food affordably while maintaining our land for future generations. And honestly, that last one, we're not doing very well right now is like there's so much pressure to produce more food we have to find more sustainable ways and the other side on the farming farmer side farmers are very entrepreneurial 
Like we need farmers just as much as the beef industry that needs it just as much as any agricultural industry. And so we might need the farmers to grow different things and we'll have to help with that infrastructure conversion. But we need farmers more than really any other industry anyway. And so it's just a, it's a new opportunity for farmers that want to work with us. And we're seeing industries changing with this, whether it be the big meat processors are getting into this because they see this as a trend that need, they need to become much more sustainable. The consumers are looking for this. They need to help convert their infrastructure over to this as well. And we need that to happen because it's such a big global industry and has such an environmental impact at the scale we're doing it at. We need to move very fast. There's also the question of where these products would be located in a supermarket. Are they a vegetarian product that should be placed with the other vegetarian options or are they actually meat? Yeah, I think it's all about messaging to make sure consumers know what the product is. So Impossible is like we're beginning stronger and stronger on the consumer awareness on what Impossible means. Impossible is like we are meat made from plants. It's very clear that this comes from plants. It's not coming from a cow. If we try to market as coming from a cow, that one would not help us in a lot of regards. And it's very important for us to bring our consumers with us. And so exactly how different places are looking at naming. Um, to me, it's all about making sure the consumer knows what they're, what they're eating. Do you think much about like the sustainability of the ingredients that go into the Impossible Burger? And um, like, do you have processes in place to make sure that, you, you know, especially as you expand, you need to create more production facilities, etc., that those ingredients come from, you know, sustainable sources, you know, ethical locations, etc.? Every ingredient that we look at, we run through a pretty heavy sustainability analysis. And there's many ingredients that are on the market that we would be great to use in our products that we're just not comfortable with right now based on the way it's produced. And so I think over time, you know, we can have more impact in like changing production of possible ingredients that could be very good for us and make it more sustainable. Uh, but it's extremely important in what we do. We have a team that focuses on this. And we do look, we look from everything going into the farm to leaving our factory door. Because that is like the you know the the control mechanism that we have, and so it's the same as like when that's what we can compare it against meat. And the numbers of like 96% less land, 89% less greenhouse gas emissions, 87% less water. That's based on comparing that footprint and that system from exactly what goes into the farms to you know what we send to our customers and consumers. Has working at Impossible changed your relationship with food? Very much so. <laughs> I think it was like I grew up on a dairy farm, and when we started Impossible, I was like I still ate a lot of meat. It was part of my culture, part of my just in some ways identity too in that regards. And I learned more about the sustainability challenges. I learned more about the you know the healthiest diets. Typically, by most all the research shows that it should be more plant based. And I like, I was like, you know what? I don't need that. And I've learned how to cook. And now I can have Impossible all the time too. And so I hear that from a lot of people. I was like, I never thought I could be a vegetarian. Then I had Impossible. I was like, I haven't had meat in a month now because I had Impossible. I was like, that's amazing. This episode of Moonshot was produced and edited by me, Christopher Lawson. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And our artwork is by Andrew Millist. And don't forget, if you'd love to get the very best version of this podcast, head across to moonshotdaily.com. You can sign up for an ad-free feed and you'll also get bonus episodes. Plus, you'll get a daily email update about the future. We'll be back with another episode of Moonshot next week. Thanks for listening.